0: See them moving. Kids, head to wherever Stephanie is. Oh, yeah, get the little... serena has got the little things going on. Head to the back towards Stephanie and head out to kids' worship this morning. And as they head out today, we continue the Doers of the Word sermon series and we're continuing to explore the book of James. James, we discovered last week, has some really hard and challenging words. It's not an easy book. And they force us the question for really putting our work where our faith is found. How will my life be different? How does it look different? How do I act differently because of my relationship with Jesus? What influence does faith have on our actions is the question we're continuing to ask. How do we become doers of the word? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning, centering ourselves. Gracious God, as we come this morning, we are thankful for an opportunity to be able to hear these tough and challenging words. We're thankful that you're going to help us to understand them better and that your Holy Spirit's going to work inside of us in those places of most need that we need to hear the most. So, Lord, pour into the words you've given to me and the words that will come out and be a part of what you have for each one of us, both here and at home this morning. We ask for the Holy Spirit to be upon all that we say and all that we do here. And the people both here and at home said together, Amen encourage you to be able to follow along in the YouVersion Bible app. And I also, hopefully, if you haven't started doing it yet, and there's still plenty of time, that you will take some time to be able to go and join the study of James that is on YouVersion by Francis Chan. Some amazing stuff there. And uh, enjoying uh, those days of that. There's only 12 days of it, so you can spread it out. And it's in different chapters. So you can also just do a couple here and a couple there in order to line up with the chapters either you're going to hear or the ones you've already heard and follow along with Francis Chan in that as well. So last week in chapter 1, James dealt with the issue of temptation, saying the testing of your faith produces endurance and that the person who endures temptation will receive the crown of life. However, he denied that temptation ever comes from God and affirmed that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And then he counseled us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Counseled that if we all did it, would solve many of the world's problems if we just did that one piece right there he introduces main point then of doing versus merely hearing the word which is what he's going to talk about more in chapter 2 today and so now that now james continues about how we can be doers of the word and what that looks like and how do we do that? The first thing he says is, don't show partiality. Say partiality. That's a word you use every day, partiality. Partiality. Don't show partiality. Because he says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism, another word for partiality, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? So when James says, the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we're not sure if he's speaking about the faith that Jesus possessed, or maybe the faith that believers have in Jesus. And he goes on and he says, this is how you figure this out. He says, for if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat over here, but while to the poor one you say, stand there or sit over there on the floor, this is the whole part of this chapter. Remember what's going on during James' time. The rich are being treated differently than the poorer Christians. In fact, in some places, the rich are given seats and the poorer Christians are made to sit on the floor in the aisles because they're not rich. Maybe because they work for the person who is rich. So who's going to push their boss out of a seat and go sit down? You see, we're, we're all very tempted to show partiality to wealthy or powerful people. You don't think so? Think about your life. Think about when somebody pulls up in that Toyota Tercel, or they pull up in that Mercedes Benz. Who's doing better? Think about the person on the garbage truck who takes your garbage out every day, and the mayor of your city is more powerful. Think about any situation where there's a hierarchy and you're pretty much going to find that somebody who has money or has power has more influence than someone who doesn't. Sometimes it's also out of respect. We respect people for what they've been able to achieve and accomplish, right? We, we respect the, the, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world who can be able to put the rocket into space and be able to go up there and, and take Wally, who was the female astronaut thrown out of the program, who was the best astronaut ever, who never got a chance to go to space. Well, I value him for that. His money gave him a chance to make a right out of a wrong. Sometimes out of fear. People with money have more money, you know. You're fearful of that because they can put the thumb on you pretty quick. They can make sure they get what they want. Sometimes in the hope that the wealthy or powerful person might help us, right? You know, so that person, you know if I treat them nice, then they might do something for me, or I might be able to to be able to figure out something that will help in some other way. On the other side of the coin, though. Angry people sometimes go to great lengths to show disdain for high-status people. Oh, they're rich. They're no good. Oh my God, sit in their mansion all day and just make decisions. They don't do anything. They don't work. They have no idea what it's like to live in life. But both those approaches are wrong as Christians. Both respond to the wealth or the power Rather than to the person. It shouldn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor or somewhere in between. Why? Because God doesn't show partiality. No partiality. That's the whole point. No partiality. We hear that in places like first 1 Peter one seventeen where it says, But without respect of persons, judges according to each person's work. Not according to their bank account. God doesn't respond to us according to our bank account. How many investments we have or what our position of prestige or power is. Whether we're a supervisor or we're a shift worker. Whether we're an owner. God doesn't respond that way. And there are lots of examples in the Bible about that. The Torah, the Psalms, the prophets forbid showing partiality, all the way back since the beginning. Jesus rebuked powerful scribes and rich Pharisees, not because they're powerful, but because they use their power for self-serving purposes. If you use whatever power that you have for self-serving purposes, that's against God. It's not about to feather your own nest. To simply do what you want to do and use your power to be able to do that, whatever that power is, or whoever whoever, who. You see? And so he goes on to say, after he gives that little piece of the the example, he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Made distinctions or partiality here means to make judgments. To categorize people by their class. We do it all the time. Do you really feel the homeless person on the side of the road is equal to you? Or someone to be pitied? To help because they're in need, but not really because you think they're somehow equal. And then we respond to them according to their class. The person who has the the seats at the Titans game that are in the boxes, they are more important than the folks that are down there in the bleacher section, right? So the people in the box seats should get more stuff, right? They should get more stuff. They they should be treated differently. They should be treated higher than the person who just bought that ticket. And that's why he says, and then you become judges with evil thoughts. So have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? As I said, the Torah, the Psalms, the Prophets, they forbid showing partiality. The person who divides people into classes and tailors his or her response to those people according to their class is guilty of violating the Jewish law regarding judging. Remember who he's talking to? Jews who've become Christians. Christians. Leviticus 19.15 clearly says this as you see in front of you. It's not up for interpretation. And what does James mean by evil thoughts? Well, there are many possibilities. A person who shows partiality to the rich might be guilty of coveting the rich person's money. Do you always know what more means? I just need a little bit more. More actually translates out if you do studies to about $10,000 more than you make. Whatever more is, more is always just, if I just had a little bit more, if I could just go up to that next ladder, that next rung on the ladder, if I could just, a little bit more, just a little bit more. i look at all things they could do. I wish I could do all those things. And maybe wanting to find a way to get some of it. How can I get some of that money? I deserve some of that money. Or maybe being guilty of hating the rich person. Condemning them without cause. I see this a lot in a lot of CEOs, people like that. All CEOs are bad. They all make too much money. Look at all the government officials. They all make too much money. Look at all this stuff. I happen to know one person who did a lot for me in my life. Did a lot for a lot of others. Cal Turner Jr., Dollar General place either you love or you don't. You may think it's some corporate monolith somewhere. I can tell you I know the guy that was behind it. I know all the good that he did. It does. Different interpretation. How are you going to use your money if you're rich is really the question. So it goes on to say how to be doers of the word then is be poor in this world but rich in faith. Be poor in this world, but be rich in faith. Say rich. Rich. I felt like it was like rich. Like you just want Like rich. Rich in faith. Poor in this world. Some of the poorest people monetarily are some of the most richest people in faith I've ever seen. Amen? You go to other countries real quick where they have absolutely Nothing. Well, they'll stand in line all day in a pouring rain down like this, as it did one of the days I was there, just to wait for medical care and to get a tooth pulled. All day. And when they got to the end of it, they didn't get to the front of it and say, what took so long? What took so long for you guys to be able to help me? I can't believe it. I've been waiting in line over here all day. No, they did. They smiled. They thanked us again and again and again for helping them. Why? Because when all you've got to live on is faith, and you don't have any money, your faith gets really strong really quick. And he says, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that He has promised to those who love Him? The word used here means to select or choose. Not necessarily exclusively. But the fact is that God blesses the poor with faith doesn't necessarily exclude the rich from receiving the same blessing. It is not the fact that you somehow if you are rich, or whatever rich looks like, and that's always a good one too, because rich is always down the street somewhere. And yet I live in a neighborhood that has a six-figure house. You might probably nowadays do too. if your house was built 40 years ago and it's a shack, it's probably six figures. I'm driving a brand new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport out there. Look how high rolling I am. Got my 10-year-old Escape over there in the corner, you know. That's old news, right? Got this new car. See, I'm too big for my britches. I'm too fancy. You're driving a $50,000 vehicle that I couldn't afford to be in you start playing that game, it comes really obvious quick that we have contempt for those who have more. And so what he's saying is is that the poor do receive that blessing. It doesn't mean the rich are left out of it either. If people use their resources like they're supposed to, then all are part of that blessing. When we've in fact known wealthy people who are devout and humble servants of the Lord. And the more money they had, the more money they're able to use. Sometimes I just wish that I had that kind of money to be able to do some of the things that I would love to do. When somebody comes to me and and wants to do something, I could just write a check out for $10,000 just right then. Here. Let me help you. And they do that. Grants, scholarships. Went to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Learned about the whole Hershey story and all the people that Hershey has put through college over that time. The... The great entrepreneurs, a lot of them were all people of great philanthropic desire. They were also jerks sometimes, too. Made lots of money. But they knew what it was supposed to be used for. But faith does seem to be more prevalent among the poor than among the rich sometimes. Because once people become rich, they begin to think of themselves too highly. See, that's the problem. When we get that money, when we start to you know, have that kind of style, when we're making it up there, when we're, we're making those six figures, all of a sudden we kind of think that we've made it. And we don't need God at all. I made this. This is my job, my promotion. I worked from you know, every day from this time to this time. I worked hard to get this. The richer you get, the more that becomes the thing. The more you want to covet it, the more you want to keep it. You don't want to give any of it away. That's why you see a lot of folks, when they become rich, they become very stingy. And he goes on to say, but you dishonored the poor. Because if God has honored the poor person, how can we feel justified in treating the poor man badly? Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Remember I talked about before that the the early Christians were being dragged in by the rich in the court and being all the money taken from them. They don't even have any money and the rich just want more. No mercy. You feel that sometimes too, right? The rich are just squeezing out more and more money out of the middle class and the lower classes. And they just keep getting richer and richer and the poor keep getting What? Poor and poorer. And he says that they, it's ironic that we show deference to people who use their power to mistreat us. And he says the rich sometimes drag the poor into court, and that's an arena where the rich have a distinct advantage. You don't think so? Go to court against somebody who's rich sometime. Go to somebody who has a lawyer on retainer and see how a chance you've really got to be able to get justice. Be a different color and go to court than being a white male. So he says, Don't they blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And I always thought a blasphemy or of verbal abuse is directed at God, you know, but it was surprising, it's also found that we talked about this before, but it applies to verbal abuse directed at people. We call it slander. We mentioned this in Ephesians. To slander someone. All those words of all those anger words they had in Ephesians, slander would be a good translation because slander conveys the element of evil intent and untrue charges. You ever been slandered against? That's an evil intent. And when it's untrue, and especially when they know it's untrue, and you can't do anything about it. And so he says, so he goes on to say, how are we doers of the word then? He goes further, he goes, fulfill the law. Fulfill the law. And the law is, love your what? Neighbor. Fulfill the law. Love your Neighbor. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. Well, the royal law according to the scripture is the king's law, God's law. And Jesus taught the whole of the law and the prophets could be summarized into two commandments. Love God and what? Love your neighbor. That's it. That's all you can remember. That's all you got to know. Love God. Love your neighbor. And then James narrows it down this list to one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James says that the person who loves his or her neighbor does well. That's true in three ways. First, that person keeps the law. Second, they make a better life for their neighbor, and third, they make a better life for themselves, even into eternity. So, what James is saying is you fulfill the law by loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And, but then he goes on, but if you don't do that, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. So there's a connection between the last verse and this verse. And the person who loves his or her neighbor will treat the neighbor well, regardless of wealth or social position. But showing partiality means treating the rich or powerful well and the poor less well, which violates the love your neighbor rule. You see, it's all out the window when we do that. And he says, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We tend to think about the hierarchy of guilt and innocence. We all play this game. Where is the sin on the sin list? If I just tell a little white lie down here, that's at the bottom of the list. If I commit murder, it's up here. That's not how it works. There's no ordering of sins anywhere within the Scripture whatsoever. To tell a lie is the same as if you're going to go out and murder someone. Jesus made it really clear. That's not how it works. A sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. And so James would only think of us in two categories guilty or innocent. Guilty or innocent transgressors and those who are holy. And showing partiality, favoritism, moves us from the innocent to the guilty column. From holiness and going to transgression. And he goes on, For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You've become a transgressor of the law. Remember last week, How many laws were there they had to follow? may remember? Oh, yeah. See, last week, see, that was a sermon last week. You slept uh, six nights since then, haven't you? Right? So you wonder why preachers always think that nothing they say makes any difference by Monday. 513, right? 513. So if you don't fulfill... One of the 513 you haven't fulfilled any of it, you failed. You're guilty. Which is what he's saying is, so when you can't do all of it, because you can't do that, then you are, you're guilty. Whether you're guilty of murder, adultery, showing partiality, any other sin, we have become transgressors of the law, because we can't live in the law. So then you might ask, well, who then is innocent, right? Who's innocent? That's the kicker. No one's innocent. We're all guilty in one way or another. You see, because Paul says what? All have what? sinned, Fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. So how then can we have any hope? Well, that's when Paul says the remedy for our sin is being justified by God's grace through the redemptions in Christ Jesus, because that faith, that grace we receive, comes from God as an undeserved gift, because we're not worthy. Not one of us can simply say, you know what, God, I got it all together. Look at my list over here. I got it all figured out. I deserve what you have to give me. Not one of us would ever go to God like that and be able to say... Because that's not who we are. That's not what we understand to be a part of our faith in the first. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And James doesn't mention grace here, though. He's He's not really focused on grace. He emphasizes avoiding transgression. So speak and so act as though you who are being judged by the law of liberty, right? James emphasizing action again, right? Speaking and doing. When Christ freed us from the Jewish law, he, he did not free us from judgment. And what I'm saying is, in Matthew 25, 31-46, He creates a picture of a judgment day. That there is a day when we'll all have to be accountable for what we do in life. We don't like having to deal with that or thinking about that. But we're all going to have that final time to sit before God and have to answer for what we did. That's what he's talking about. And he says that it's not the kind of things that we think it is. He says that our inheritance of the godly kingdom will depend on whether we fed the hungry. You fed the hungry? Gave a drink to the thirsty. Welcome the stranger. That's a hard one. We don't like strangers. We don't like folks that aren't a part of us. We don't like anybody we don't know. It's hard to break in. To relationships, because we don't want to open ourselves up to new people. Clothe the naked. Well, hopefully, you saw somebody naked. You probably clothed them. I hope. Visit the sick and those in prison. Oh, okay. Whoa, that's now you're going. Go to prison and visit people. That's what he says. These are the determining factors of who enters the kingdom of God and who doesn't. Jesus' has own words. So to speak and we act. We need to keep that vision of judgment day before us so it might motivate us to speak with with acts of compassion and act with compassion to all those around us. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. See, he's affirming his big brother, remember? Jesus' is big brother. He's Who said, blessed are the who? Merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Did Jesus say blessed are the powerful? Blessed are those who have wealth. Blessed are those who make big decisions. Blessed are those who live in big houses. Blessed are those who can tell somebody else what to do. No. He says, blessed are the merciful. He also says, blessed are the meek, so it kind of covers some of that part too. He also says, blessed are the poor. So there's a little bit of that in there too, and those blessings. For they shall obtain mercy. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our what? Our debtors. Forgive us our debts. We're asking forgiveness for ourselves, but at the same time, that's pretty easy. We're also asking forgiveness for those who have trespassed against us. That's hard. Then he went on to warn, though. We don't get that part in the Lord's Prayer when we say it. We probably should add it somewhere. For if you will forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Did you see this words? It's not Paul... It's not another person. This is Jesus who is saying this. So, what is mercy? Peter David defines mercy as the application of grace. Say grace. Grace. She died nearly 30 years ago. Sorry. Had to. Never hear the word grace. Active application of mercy. I like that. That mercy is the conduit that conveys grace to the needy person. If you pity somebody, that's not really mercy, is it? Mercy is actually caring enough and about compassion and, and wanting to help somebody because you really want to help them. Not because you're being made to or you should do it but because you really feel you need to help that person, whether they're poor or they're rich. And let me tell you, folks, the rich have as many problems as the poor and sometimes more. They just hide them better. So how are we doers of the Word? He comes to the end of it. By faith and works together. Say faith and works. Faith and works, right? Right? James is concerned here with what we call lip service faith. Last week, you know when he gives somebody lip service, you know? But you don't do anything like you're supposed to. Faith that finds expression in words, but not in deeds. And that's what he goes into. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you then? That's a rough statement. This question is the one that provokes a lot of controversy. This question is the one that Martin Luther was uncomfortable with the book of James, called the Epistle of Straw, which seemed to be at odds with Paul's theology of salvation by faith rather than works. Paul emphasizes we've been saved by faith again and again and again, but James says that genuine faith will result in works. And any faith that produces no good works is not true faith. And I believe Paul would actually agree with James on this point. While Paul does emphasize we cannot win salvation by our good works, he also acknowledges though, in Galatians 5:16 through26, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived," he says. He commands us to live not according to the flesh. But according to the Holy Spirit, that's an action. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is what? And I don't have the twins here at all to be able to spell all this stuff out. What are the fruit of the spirits? What? They're not a coconut, right? What are they? <laughs> Woo! Thank you, Psalm, right? Oh, Sean. Did you, did you belt that out there? Oh, Sean Sandfield, yeah, when he went to give Sean the props for that. And what are all those things? Are those all just thoughts, ideas in your head? Are those just things that you just kind of like you say and a nice little song and a little ditty? No. They're all what? Actions. They're all putting your faith into action. So yes, Paul does understand the fact is faith has to have action. And if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? When we can acknowledge the value of a, a pat on the back and just saying, hey, hang in there, you know, But saying, hey, hang in there to somebody who is starving or literally has no clothes or no home and then telling them to hang in there, what kind of faith is that? That's what he's saying. Those are little value to a person who's cold, naked, who's hungry. Just just imagine this. We're trying to figure out room at the end. And if you want to serve in a room at the end, we're going to need you more than ever this year. We are down a team, looks like, and trying to figure it out. If we're even going to pull this off, everybody's going to have to pull together. But imagine this. Imagine if room at the end, if what we did was... This would be great, right, Debbie? Here we go. Davis, here we go. We're going to pick the guys up in the bus, right? And we're going to bring them back here to the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to leave them outside. We're going to leave them outside in the back. And we're just going to give them a place to be able to sit down. We're not giving give them any food or anything, not a place to sleep. We're not going to do any of that because that's a little too much for us to do and really they're probably bad people anyways. And we're just going to you know, do that. That's ludicrous. How is that possibly living out our faith or feed the need? You know what we're going to do, Debbie, what we're going to do is take all their information down. We're going to write it all down, tell them we're going to pray for them. We really hope they'll be able to find some food somewhere. And then we're going to send them on their way, Debbie. And we're going to have all the food put out. But we're going to give it to people, you know, give it somebody else because they don't really need it. I mean, they, I mean come on, they came through the feed the Mercedes. They came through the Mercedes and the feed the need line. That person can't possibly need any food. D- don't, don't tell me you haven't done it. Don't tell me you looked at one of the cars that comes through and you haven't said to yourself, oh, what are they doing in here? Well, that truck's more expensive than anything I even got. That's a $50,000 truck. Because we're we're naturally inclined to do that. And he's saying that that's not going to work for us as Christians. And it's not going to work for us not to, to do something. So words by themselves cannot satisfy the needs of a person who lacks food and clothing and shelter. How can you simply just simply say to someone, You know what, gosh, I'm praying you'll find some clothes. I'm praying you're going to find some shelter from this rain outside right now that's pouring down on you while you walk around the streets of Nashville. So he says, So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And I would agree with him. If we're so heavenly bound that we're no earthly good, then how is our faith really worth anything? And James isn't trying to downplay the role of faith. In the next verse, he speaks of his own faith, right? His point is that true faith will manifest itself in action, will make a difference in the way that we live. That faith that fails to do that is dead. It's lifeless, it's useless. It doesn't really show any way whatsoever we have faith. And he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. You have faith, I have works. I don't need both those things. Some folks do lots of works but don't really have faith. Some folks have a lot of faith, don't do much works. But James replied that faith and works are not two different gifts, but each one sufficient unto itself. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. True faith will always give rise to good works, and works will always confirm the validity of that person's faith. It's like we said last week, faith plus action is what James is about. It's not action minus faith. Faith plus action. Say that with me. Faith plus action. Say it again. Faith plus action. One more time for the home crowd. Faith plus action. Amen. So I invite you this morning to to come into this moment. It's World Communion Sunday. You know, I thought a lot about getting all those kinds of breads we do and putting all that out there and showing on the altar all these breads from around the world. Then I thought to myself too, some of my friends do this and there's nothing wrong with it, but I thought to myself, all that bread is out there, how much it ever gets to anybody else to be used? I mean, can you imagine really that we put all these kind of breads and we spent, you know, $50, $100 on bread that usually gets thrown out to the birds in that case of everything? just kind of seems to go against what James says in those ways. So this morning, we'll simply celebrate communion with what we have. We need to pray for those who don't have bread. We need to pray for those around the world that would see a table that would be laid out with breads everywhere. And they have none. Including their own country's bread. But it seems kind of ironic, doesn't it? Faith plus And when we leave this table today, may we find that we take this remembrance of Jesus giving his life for us and that we give our lives for others around us as well. So I want to invite Rick to come forward this morning as we celebrate communion at home. Get your elements ready to go, your juice, your bread, as we prepare here in the same way. Jesus was always the guest. In the homes of Peter and Jairus, Martha and Mary, Joanna and Susanna, he was always the guest. At the meal table of the wealthy where he pled the case of the poor, he was always the guest. Upsetting polite company, befriending isolated people, welcoming the stranger, he was always the guest. But here at this table, Jesus is the host. Those who wish to serve him must first be served by him. Those who want to follow him must first be fed by him. Those who would wash his feet must first let him make them clean. For this is the table where God intends us to be nourished. This is the time when Christ can make us new. So come, you who hunger and thirst for a deeper faith, for a fuller life, for a better world. Jesus Christ, who has sat at our tables, now invites us to be a guest at his.
1: Let us pray. Holy God, we praise you, for you are the one from whom we will return. You conceived the universe, wove the world together, and hold all life in your hand. You watch us waking or sleeping. You keep every tear that we shed. You hear every prayer that we make. You know both our best and our worst, and you will not let us go. We praise you for Christ's life, which informs our living, for his compassion, which changes our hearts, for his clear speaking, for his disturbing presence, for his innocent suffering, his courageous dying, his raising to life, Breathing forgiveness, we praise you and worship you. Merciful God, send now in kindness your Holy Spirit to rest on converting us excuse me, converting us from the patterns of this passing world until we conform to the shape of the one whose food we now share. Amen. Amen.
0: Among friends gathered around a table, Jesus took bread and said, This is My body broken for you. Give and do this in remembrance of Me.
1: Later, He took the cup and said, This is the relationship with God made possible because of My death. Take it, all of you, to remember me.
0: Christ, whom the universe could not contain, is present to us in the breaking of this bread. Christ, who redeemed us and called us by name, now meets us in the sharing of this cup. So take this bread and this cup, and in this meal God comes close to us, so that we may come close to God. I invite everyone at home to have your elements ready to go. I invite us to prepare our table here and be ready to go. When you come and receive, you will come and receive by these sections right here and come and grab your elements and return to your seats. The side sections will also do the same thing. And then we'll all take it at once, taking our masks off and taking communion at one time. So I invite everyone to come as you come down the aisles to come this way and to receive communion today. Come forward to receive communion today.
2: I wanna know You, Lord. So why box you in, but I am laying down. I wanna know you, Lord. I used to think I could box you in, but I am laying down. I wanna know you, Lord.
0: Think we're just about ready to partake. Everybody has one. Stephanie's taking care of Davis. Anyone not come forward that needs one in their seats? I think everybody came forward he wanted. I always invite you that this bread works a little better if you dip a little bit into the cup to kind of soften it up. The body of Christ broken and given in love for each one of us. Amen. The blood of Christ shed. Spilled, poured out for us in love. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for uniting us as the body of Christ, for filling us with joy at the table. Lead us toward the unity of your church and help us treasure signs of reconciliation. Now that we have tasted the banquet you have prepared for us, may we one day feast together in your heavenly city. Through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. And everybody both here and at home said together, Amen. In the simple gospel, I will rejoice in you, Lord. You gather me up from the dust. Mercy to share to everybody. As you have been fed, go feed the hungry. As you have been set free, go free the imprisoned. As you have received, give. As you have heard, proclaim. And the blessing which you have received from the Creator and the Christ and the Holy Spirit be with all of you always and ever. Amen. For everybody at home, Everybody here. We all said together, Amen. Go. Faith plus action.